Hello, I'm Andrew Harrison. Welcome to The Bunker, where every day we try to make sense of something new, interesting, or maybe just disturbing on the political landscape. When Margaret Thatcher's one-time Chancellor Nigel Lawson died in March, aged 91, the tributes were effusive. The late Lord Lawson was a giant, a titan, a maverick committed unbeliever who had lessons for today's pessimists. His economic reforms, including wholesale privatisations and the ending of the 60% top tax rate, were credited with making the Thatcher revolution irreversible. But the obituaries only lightly touched on what they called his climate scepticism, a strange formulation given that outright climate denial formed the centre of Lawson's activities in the final two decades of his life. Lawson co-founded an outfit called the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which churns out papers attacking or misrepresenting climate science. It even acts as a channel through which American ideological groups are trying to interfere in British democracy, according to Bob Ward of the LSE Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. Headquartered at number 55 Tufton Street, where else? The Global Warming Policy Foundation and its lobbying arm at Net Zero Watch are at the centre of a well-funded network of climate deniers. And now they have friends in Parliament in the shape of a Conservative backbench body called the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. Former Foundation trustee Steve Baker founded the Net Zero Scrutiny Group in 2021. And in January 2022, he told Sky News that when the full costs of net zero start hitting us, we could end up with something bigger than the poll tax, certainly bigger than Brexit, because the numbers of people hit by it and their inability to cope will be huge. The Net Zero Scrutiny Group has close ties to the ERG, who showed what a small and unrepresentative group can achieve if they're relentless enough. So what do we need to know about them? How effective is the Net Zero Scrutiny Group and is it achieving its aims? To help me understand this strange network, I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Alvis of the Green Alliance, who works on structural economic problems related to climate and nature. He was an advisor to Tony Blair and he worked on Brexit and industrial strategy for the Wellcome Trust. He has an MSc in climate change. Hello, Sam. Welcome to the bunker. Hi, Andrew. Great to be here. Firstly, tell us a bit about the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Nigel Lawson set it up in 2009 as a charity to combat what it describes as extremely damaging and harmful policies to mitigate climate change. What does that translate into? So the Global Warming Policy Foundation has been on a bit of a journey. Back in 2009, if you remember, we were going through the financial crash, uh, economic concerns, cost of living, all of those things that we're very familiar to people now, but were really front of mind then as well. And what they were seeking to do is play into that febrile environment and start to undermine some of the consensus view on climate. And it came actually, their launch came a few days after what was known as Climate Gate, which was this ex expose and misrepresentation of emails coming out of academia about climate science. They really sought to play on that misunderstanding or miscommunication and undermine the public's faith in, in climate change, the fact that it was man-made. They've been on a bit of a journey since then, over the past sort of 15 years. They have now said they accept climate science. Um, they are no longer denying that climate change is a thing or that it's driven by uh, driven by human uh, causes. But what they're saying is actually the way we are going about dealing with it, the costs of it, the government intervention, all of these things, that is much more of an issue. So they have pivoted somewhat to tacking net zero as a policy rather than the idea of climate science. So how has that changed what their, their lobbying activities are? And we can talk in a minute about how they've had to separate their lobbying and their charitable arms. Strange that it is that they are a charity. How has that, how has that changed what they actually try to affect in the world of real life politics? 
So if you go back to 2009, what you would see is Nigel Lawson or others popping up on the BBC um, in the name of balance and saying, no, we can't accept this science. We've got some different science, cherry picking data, some particular papers that might represent their view and actually saying this is a 50-50 debate as misrepresenting the scientific consensus back then. What you have now is... Again, a very similar group of people, retired or, or elderly conservative, um, former conservative members um, of parliament, cropping up occasionally, but with much less influence, much less likely to be on mainstream media to come on the BBC and say, you know, climate change isn't a thing, but actually cropping up occasionally in parliament or through letters or in the press saying, we can't afford this. Actually, this net zero is not good. It's not democratic. And really... That came about mostly around the Glasgow Climate Summit in 2021, which the UK obviously hosted and championed. And weirdly, despite their interaction with Boris Johnson over over Brexit and their agreement with him on that, they really clashed over this idea of net zero being the future of government policy. So the foundation ran afoul of charity regulators in 2014 because it was engaging in political activities contrary to charity regulations. Can you tell us a bit about what happened and how they had to kind of split off their lobbying on Net Zero Watch? Yeah, so the Charity Commission exists to make sure that charities are pursuing aims that are in the public benefit. So that might be education or social welfare vision. It can be anything really. But what the Charity Commission are there to stop you doing is political activity. So you can't use charities to advocate for political parties and individual aims. So what that means in practice is you have to be balanced and independent, rigorous, and you have to be evidence and data led. Now, it's up for your listeners to decide whether they think the Global Warming Policy Foundation fits into those categories, but certainly the charity commission didn't think they did. So they did this review of their materials and they said, actually, this is not in the public benefit. There isn't neutrality. And it's despite their desire to be classified as an educational charity, there was no educational benefit of the materials they were putting out. So what that meant is the Global Warming Policy Foundation had to split off the Global Warming Policy Forum. Not a great deal of name change, still the same acronym, but that was then became the home as a non-charitable entity for all of their campaigning and lobbying activity. Through that, if you're in a campaign rather than a registered charity, you can push particular political aims. And what we saw actually more recently is the GWPF, the forum version of that acronym, has now become Net Zero Watch as a new campaign. So let's talk about the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. You really do need a kind of checklist to kind of get through. <laughs> and, the, and the acronyms are really difficult, aren't they? The NZSG does not really trip off the tongue. So the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, it's 20 plus Tory backbenchers, model on the ERG, members include Esther McVeigh, Robert Halfen, Tory Peer, Peter Lilly. Tell us about them. I mean, what are they looking to achieve? What are their actual real interventions in, in Parliament? So the Net Zero Scrutiny Group are one of a rising number of Tory backbench groupings. I think a lot of people looked at the ERG and said, we want to do that and have tried to do it for various issues. We have a Northern Research Group, we have a China Research Group, and of course, we have the Net Zero Scrutiny Group. Often with these groups, and particularly with the Net Zero one, it's much easier to understand what they don't like as opposed to what they are there for. So we know that the Net Zero Scrutiny Group don't like any form of spending on Net Zero. They don't like any form of increase in fuel duty rises um, and have been quite vocal on that. 
the one thing that we do know that they do like is fracking and shale gas. Um, and they've written a number of letters on the Telegraph, one of the few places that will take their letters to say, we should really be championing this domestic form of gas. And we can go into why that has been incredibly unsuccessful. But other than that, it is really hard to to pinpoint to where they've had any form of public presence or influence. Because if you look at where public opinion in the UK is now, almost on every issue they champion, they are going well and truly against to the grain. What's the relationship then between the Net Zero Scrutiny Group and the Global Warming Policy Foundation? I mean, is it simply a kind of, you know, backstage exchange of ideas or, or, or are things being funded and people being taken around the world and stuff like that? So there's certainly crossover on personnel. We know that some of the members of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, although, to be honest, we don't know the true membership. As always with these groups, it it benefits them to say they have more members than they actually do. And we've only seen sort of public membership lists when it comes to sign on to letters, which isn't necessarily indicative of um, of who is a member. And I think the other point to, to mention on the, the membership front is if we take the 22 that wrote the letter to the Telegraph, that pales in comparison, even in conservative circles, say to the Conservative Environment Network, the, the pro-environmental action grouping, which is well over 130 MPs. But in terms of their relationship with the Global Warming Policy Foundation, certainly there is an exchange of some personnel, but actually... If you look at the rhetoric, the ideas, it's clear that there is a lot of overlap on briefing and messaging and and they come through exchanges behind the scenes that we can't point to publicly. In terms of the funding now, it takes a, a much smarter, much bigger team of investigative journalists than I to really dig into the funding here. We've seen a lot of stories recently about Westminster funding more generally, but it's murky. We don't really know where the money comes from to support the Net Zero Scrutiny Group in the same way that actually we don't really know where the money comes from from the Global Warming Policy Foundation. They have a membership list. It doesn't contribute that much. So there must be some other sources somewhere. Well, we do know because it's the MP's register of interests that Steve Baker got £10,000 in January of this year from Neil Record, who is the chair of Net Zero Watch. And the register doesn't say what the, do- the donation was for. Baker is still Minister of State for Northern Ireland, although he's kind of on the outs with the EARG now, as he's been deleted from the WhatsApp group and everything. It's a very painful divorce. What does it mean that a minister can take so much money from active kind of climate deniers, climate sort of, um, well, I don't, what the, I don't know what the kind of term would be for that, that version of it's too expensive right now, but a group that's against climate legislation and remain a minister? Is it just a case of that that's going to feed into the conservative engine room of thought i think so i think that we classify these people now as climate delayers they claim to agree with the science but they just want to delay any form of action in doing anything about it what does it mean for the the exchange of money the exchange of ideas i mean it's really hard to say and you'd have to speak to steve baker personally about his views but what i will say is It's certainly not changing public opinion. So if you look at poll after poll after poll of public opinion at the moment, uh, to take one example recently from the British Election Survey, 84% of people are concerned about climate change. Under 20%, just 15 aren't. If you look at support for net zero, three quarters of the population, whether you are in red wall seats, whether you are in blue wall seats, whether you are rural or whether you are urban, are in support of net zero. 
And if you look at every demographic, with the exception of the over 70s, there is an overwhelming majority of people in support of action on climate change. So yes, this money is potentially reaching some people who have particular influence, but Steve Baker at the moment doesn't have anything to do with climate policy. And actually, you saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, government come out with a whole swathe of net zero policy. Net zero is still legally enshrined. So whilst some money might be changing hands or some conversation has actual impact on either public opinion or government policy, I think is very limited. I think you may have just helped us do the first optimistic bunker we've ever done in our lives. Here's <laughs> a, a bunch of stuff we don't agree with and it's kind of failing. I wanted to ask you as well, uh, Nigel Farage and lots of other far right figures on the the fringes of, of politics have waded into this and tried to energise, you know, climate delayism, as you call it, and uh, the net zero watch point of view to try to turn that into a wedge issue in the in the style of Brexit. And as I say, very encouragingly, you just pointed out that they're not making an awful lot of headway. Is it a case that, you know, trying to rerun the ERG model of a tiny group of very, very relentless people able to push the majority in their direction? Is there an emo- do you think there's an emotional appeal to these MPs or do they see it as a real way of getting things done? Why they choose those tactics, I don't know. The ERG can obviously claim to be successful, but whether you whether you think Brexit was because of the ERG or because of decades of economic stagnation and all the other reasons that we know uh, were important in that decision is another matter. So rerunning that model for climate is interesting. And like I say, it hasn't really cut through. I think particularly for Nigel Farage, so if you look at when the Global Warming Policy Foundation was launched in 2009, yes, support for climate action was high, but it was vulnerable. It's very shallow. And actually, when the financial crash hit, that became the massive priority. And you saw climate support, environmental support actually fall off a bit of a cliff and become a lower tier issue. We are in a very similar position in terms of an economic crisis post-COVID, with supply chains, with the Russian war in Ukraine at the moment. Yet there has been no dip at all in support for climate action, in support for environmental action. And why is that? Actually, if you talk to the public, we've done a lot of focus groups recently on, on energy generation. The public see this cost of living issue as the other side of the energy crisis. They know that this is coming from high gas prices. So when people like Nigel Farage and actually the Net Zero Scrutiny Group wrote a letter on this and saying, no, do you know what's causing uh, our reliance on gas is renewables. Like The public just know instinctively that that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. They know that fracking, which they don't want to see in their local area or damaging the UK countryside and producing more gas is not going to be the answer to these questions. Although they're trying to replay the playbook of the ERG, the messaging that they are trying to put forward is so counter-instinctive to what the, where the public are at the moment that it is just not cutting through. On the question of energy security, because that's been the big game changer since the the Ukraine war, people have seen that renewables are not simply uh, for the tofu eating wokerati like me and uh, other fellow Guardian readers. It's actually about maintaining um, secure energy supply, uh, making us less beholden to um, Russian gas and to other Im- imported energy. Has the net zero scrutiny group kind of taken? Any of that on board? What 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 is their what is their counter argument that we we apart from we should pile into fracking? You know their their counter argument on renewables in the context of the Ukraine war. 
So this is where they start to rapidly run out of depth, and I think is one of the reasons why they've been proven to be so ineffective, is their argument would be the only way to energy security is fracking. Now, there are some shale reserves in the UK. They are nowhere near enough to um, support UK energy consumption as a whole. And we know actually that you look at the gas in the North Sea, we tend to end up exporting gas because the problem is, these when you dig up gas it is dug up and owned by a private company the private company will sell that at the highest price whether it's domestically or abroad there is absolutely no guarantee and this is where the net zero scrutiny group gets stuck that that gas goes to consumers in the uk with renewables because you are generating them generating electricity directly you tend to put renewables close to home because you want to have that going straight into a population centre, you can't really transport offshore wind and electricity across the entire world because you start to lose that electricity as it goes down cables. So what they haven't been able to pivot to is say, is countering this idea that renewable energy is secure, it's British, it's domestically produced, and it's, um, it's moving us away through authoritarian. So what they try and pivot to is cost. But they're losing on that argument as well. We know that offshore wind is currently nine times cheaper than gas. But what they are what they are trying to do is blame current high energy prices on small things like environmental levies which sit on your electricity bill currently. But that pales in comparison to the cost of gas, which is driving the high price of energy at the moment. Going back to the Global Warming Policy Foundation for a moment, Nigel Lawson's body established in 2009. It is seemingly well-funded, but as you say, we don't really know from where and it won't declare its sources. Last year, Open Democracy found out that it had received hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, from an oil-connected foundation with a lot of investments in energy firms, a fund linked to the Koch brothers. Now, they might not be making an awful lot of headway here. They might be losing the argument. But I suppose the lesson of the ERG is relentlessness pays off. Do we need more investigation of where that kind of money is coming into this country? So the more transparency we have about money into our political system, the better, uh, whether that's registers of beneficial owners, whether that's parliament having to declare all money donated, not just a certain size. And importantly, I think there's been pushes across the across the sector to record more and more lobbying activity officially. And that's important because what you're trying to do with the net zero transition is yes, reduce emissions, is yes, improve the state of our economy through cheaper energy and, and new organisations and new businesses. But we are also changing the system. And that requires moving from current incumbents, whether that's fossil fuel companies or others who are just used to the status quo, to a new world where power sits in different places. It sits more distributed in, in local generation energy companies. It sits more with people who are more in control of their energy bills and things like that. And what that means is it's in the interest of current businesses, current wealthy people, to try and do everything they can to, to maintain the status quo. And it, it is still cheaper to pay for a lobbying group than it is to pay to for the new technology that is going to be net zero or to change your business model, right? So we need as much light shed on that problem as possible so that we can start counteracting these forces and actually building a new lobbying group, whether it's through renewable companies, environmental NGOs, who are pushing on an equal footing against fossil fuel companies who are potentially looking to, to keep things as they are. Just as they're advocating purely on the basis of cost, Further investment in traditional fossil fuels 
does look very expensive. I mean, does the argument that it's cheaper to continue, you know, forgetting about the the uh, the terrible risks of the climate of continuing as normal, their argument that it's cheaper to continue as normal, hold up? Yeah, so it's really interesting. What they're saying is, actually, net zero is way too expensive. But we do accept all the climate, uh, the science when it comes to climate change. But if you accept all the climate science that comes to climate change, you accept, therefore, all the impacts of climate change. And we know that means more flooding. It means sea level rise. It means more extreme weather. And what the Office for Budget Responsibility have said is actually dealing with these impacts of climate change will push UK national debt, something the Tories are really, really keen to keep low, up to 289% of GDP. That is almost three times what it is currently. But if you act early on climate change, actually debt barely rises at all. And that's before you start counting all of the growth related benefits from new industries, cheaper energy, healthier people. So actually, if you start to prosecute the arguments of the net zero scrutiny group that say, no, 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 we can't afford net zero, what you find out is actually that not zero is far more expensive than net zero. Sam, I think, like I say, you may have helped us with the first ever optimistic bunker. So thank you so much. It's been really interesting to hear this stuff. No problem at all. It's been a pleasure to be on. Listeners, if you found this edition not just cheering but useful, then remember you can keep us going with your own small contribution to The Bunker. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to see how you can support us for as little as £3 a month. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow for another edition. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.